Good morning. Thank you, whoever said that over there in a very hearty way. It's good to see everybody here today. Um, one quick uh, note about schedule, at least calendar. Uh, next Sunday, December the 8th, in the evening, we are having our annual meeting, which we call Vision Night. We call it Vision Night because we think it's more fun than an annual meeting night. And uh, this one is going to be a little more exciting because we're going to talk about the potential of a meeting space, a potential of a weekend meeting space for us. So I'll do some question and answer about that and lay out the potential that's there. It's in our Boston office. It's in that blue bulletin. You have all the information right there that you need next Sunday night, 5 o'clock, December the 8th. We'll also talk about the Grace Home, which is really uh, exciting what we're doing. If you are new to Grace, we are building a home right here in Arlington County for those who are challenged with developmental disabilities, and uh, that's just going to be so cool. So we've almost reached our goal of $250,000 to build this home in our community, and we are really fired up about that. So we'll talk all about that. Yep, it's awesome. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a great Thanksgiving. One of the things that I'm thankful for is I've got some really wonderful people in my life who they have values that are so awesome. Like they value diversity and they value kindness and love. They value service, serving others, right? And uh, just good hearts. Patience. Don't you need more people who value patience all around you? I mean, it's just a really great thing. And the thing that is unusual about this, and the reason I bring it up here is, is these same people who value these things that are around me, that are just so awesome, they don't value Jesus, and they don't value his church. And it just seems odd to me, because even in some cases, they kind of disdain Jesus and disdain his church. And here's the reason. I've I've mentioned this before, but now we're just going to jump full into a series all about this. The reason it's kind of so odd is Jesus is the one who has made those values that they value so highly about kindness and diversity and love. Jesus is the one who has made those very values that they live by worldwide famous. He's the one. There's nobody else. I mean, he's the one who has made it worldwide famous. This is what he's known for. And yet, so it's made me think a lot about what is this misunderstanding about the identity of Jesus Christ? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Gospel of John, right? This is Christmas. We're beginning the Christmas season. Today's message is entitled, well, the whole series is entitled, It's a Wonderful Life. I know that all of you have seen the movie before, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But... It's Christmas season. We're going to look at what John, as, as was just read, right, by the Gray family, John's version of the Christmas story. But beyond that, everybody, we're just going to dig right into the Gospel of John. Now, what do I mean when I say Gospel of John? It's called the Gospel. Gospel means good news. So here is the good, not the bad news. Here's the good news about Jesus as told to us by his disciple and best friend, John. So, and we're going to do that for about a year. Not consistently, but for 75% of the time, we're going to, and here's the reason why. Because the Gospel of John, more than any other book in the Bible, focuses and does a better job, because it's its primary purpose, of telling us exactly who Jesus is. So it identifies Jesus. It's all about who is Christ. So in, in the Gospel of John, you have these seven I am statements. Jesus is saying, this is who I am, and he does it seven different times. 
And you have seven conversations of Jesus that are really important. You have these seven different miracles of Jesus. And all of, all of those sevens are telling us the identity of Jesus. So it does a better job. And so let's see if we can't, let's see if we can't figure this out. Identity is really important. Your identity is really important. Psychologists will tell you, if you don't have a clear sense of your identity, it can lead to really poor decisions in your life. Frustration, discontentment, a lot of problems in your life if you don't have a clear sense of identity about who you are. Where do you get your identity from? Psychologists tell us this. You get your identity from probably your parents' major role, whether they were in your life or outside of your life, whether they were a good influence or a bad influence, they're shaping your identity. People who you value the most, right? Who are the closest to you? They're going to shape your identity. Culture shapes our identity. And here's the problem with all that. You've got to have a strong identity. If you don't have a strong identity, you're going to be searching, searching, discontent, a lot of problems. But if you have an identity that's not true to you, that is going to be a big, big problem. So if maybe somebody's come along in your life, whether it's your parents or it's culture or other family members or friends, and they say things about you or they treat you a certain way, then that is going to shape the way you see yourself. And you might make decisions that hurt you and hurt other people. You might make decisions that set your life back instead of pushing your life forward. So your identity is incredibly, incredibly important. And here's why the gospel of John is so important. Because once we understand the identity of God, the God that you have been made in the image of, as is told to us here, once you understand who he is, you'll have a better understanding of who you are. Once I understand who God is, I'll understand who I am. And then I will, as John tells us throughout this incredible book, it'll lead to greater satisfaction with life. It'll lead to better decision-making. I'll feel like I'm standing on a solid surface rather than something like shaky or sand. And this is why John writes this book, because he wants us to have a very, very clear understanding exactly who Jesus is. He's writing to Jewish people. He's writing to Jewish people who are both followers of Christ and those who are not followers of Christ. And so he's writing in a very Jewish context, a first century Jewish context, which is incredibly important. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But it's incredibly important that we understand who God is so that we'll better understand who we are. Now, we see people searching for who they are. Like in the past few years, these ancestry searches have become so popular. Do this DNA test, which I did. Somebody gave me this DNA test, and then somebody said, you should have never done it. They're gonna, you're, somebody's going to blame you for a murder that you've never committed because they're going to track down your DNA. I'm like, oh, my gosh, no. Okay, so I, I, we have neighbors, great neighbors, and they did the ancestry. Man, they went back a 1,000 years. They went back a 1,000 years until they found royalty in their ancestry. And then, like, once they found royalty, they stopped. I think we've gone far enough. We found royalty. We want to figure out who we are. A couple years ago, we did a series based on the TV series, This Is Us. And in This Is Us, you find the three kids, the three main players in it, Kevin, Kate, and Randall. And, like, they're always searching for who they are. I, Kevin, he, he has a drinking problem, and he has these bouts of addiction back and forth. He's kind of searching, who am I? And recently, like, so his, if you haven't seen it, sorry, spoiler alert, but his father has passed away in this movie, and he's constantly searching, and then he finds his long-lost uncle, his father's brother. In kind of one of these last episodes, the brother speaks to Kevin, who so needed to hear from his father, and in the voice of his father, he says, you're a good boy. Maybe you were looking for a role model in your life, a father figure in your life, or a mother to speak words of blessing over you. Maybe you just need somebody who you really value to say, hey, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. So 
where we get our identity from, the way we view ourselves, these things are super, super important. And when you don't know who you are, it's like somebody's ripped the, ripped the rug out from underneath of you. My, my parents divorced when I was in my 20s. And as often happens when there's a divorce, all kinds of other stuff comes out. You know, not just about your parents, but like all the family. And that's what happened in our family. You start hearing all this stuff, stuff that I never knew before. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm so glad I'm in my 20s. Because I went through this period of time. like, I don't know who I am. Like, I thought I knew who I was. But all of a sudden, all that's changed. I don't know who I am. Who am I supposed to be? You need to know your identity. And John writes this biography of Jesus Christ so we can know just who Jesus is. Because, as has already been read, and we will emphasize here, he has made everything, which means he has made you. He is your origin. He's where you're from. And this is, what he, this is who he is, and this is the way he thinks about you. It's going to shape our identity so much. It leads to a whole lot less pain in life and a whole lot more more peace. So I'm going to buzz through these words real quick again and just uh, say a few things about them, okay? So it says in John 1, 1, and this is very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's what it says in John. It's like, let me tell you, it's like another Genesis story, right? In the beginning, the Word already existed. Now, later we find out the Word is Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. So who is God? Who is Jesus? He's a life giver. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light, which means understanding, to everyone. Do you need God to bring life and light to your life? Well, that is who he is. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, that's an interesting word, and it's really exciting to know that no matter what I'm going through, no matter how dark it is, that God's light is so powerful that he can extinguish any darkness in my life right now or in the future. That's a, good, that's a really great thing to know. But that word also means something additionally. As often is the case in Greek, it can have a dual meaning, and John does a lot of dual meanings, and so here's one of them right here. So whatever darkness you're going through, God's light is so powerful, no matter what, he can create light in the midst of your darkness. But here's the secondary to it. It doesn't mean it's of less value. It's probably of more value in this case because the word here for extinguish also means to understand. In other words, it says the darkness can't understand it. So in other words, what it's saying is darkness is misunderstanding. Darkness is a misunderstanding. Now, this is probably a major theme to John because all throughout the 21 chapters, he keeps telling us stories of misunderstanding. The first one happens right in John chapter 1. They go to John the Baptist and say, are, are, are you the Elijah we're waiting for? And John says, no, no, I'm not the Elijah you're waiting for. And then Jesus says, he's the Elijah you're waiting for, okay? And then later, you find one disciple introducing another disciple to, you know, to Jesus. And they say, hey, come, come, come meet Jesus, Right? He's the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And the disciples says Nazareth wasn't a good place to, you know, to be from. He's like, nothing good can come from Nazareth. But what do we know about Jesus? He's from Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem, right where, the, right where the Messiah was supposed to be born. We're like, oh my gosh, you missed it. A misunderstanding. The gospel is filled with misunderstanding, so it's the, it's the gospel of misunderstanding. And so it's clarifying the identity of Christ, because once I know who he is, I'll know who I am. 
And knowing who I am is really important if I want to make good decisions. I want to move my life forward in a productive manner. And I want to, I want to find my true self. Because that's what psychologists say is so important about you, you and your identity. Because if you have people around you or you have a view of yourself that is not your true self, you're gone to live a life that's frustrating. Now, I don't know what your parents said, and I don't know what culture's saying to you, and I don't know what you're taking in. But I do know here from the scriptures what God is saying about you. And that is really, really important. So the Gospel of John is the gospel of misunderstanding. And it gives us just this clarity. John 20, 31, as long as I can remember studying the Bible, scholars have always said it's the book that has the clearest purpose of any book in the Bible. John 20, 31. I have written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ that he is the Christ. Now, how would they have heard these words in the first century? This is super important, everybody. I remember sitting through so many classes in Bible college or seminary, like, uh, you know, let me tell you about what was going on in this text and this Jewish text and this reading outside the Bible. Like, why does this matter? Why can't we just read it? It matters. This is, this is like, let me put it this way. If you were taking a history test, okay, you're taking a history test and you walked into the library, would you walk to the fiction section to study for that test? No. Because if you walk to the fiction section, you're going to do poorly on the test. If we want to truly understand Jesus' words, Jesus' actions, then we have to understand what they were thinking, what they were reading, what they were discussing, how they were perceiving all of his actions and all of his words. We have to know. We have to know what they're thinking in the first century. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospel of John talking about what they thought what was happening in their world so that we can grasp the understanding. If not, we're just going to have a total misunderstanding of what is going on here. Now, it says, he's the Messiah. Here's one thing. You might know this. You might not know this. But here's one thing that I learned along the way. I learned this decades ago. Dozens of people thought they were the Messiah during the time of Christ. Like when Jesus steps into the world, Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, and he's born on Christmas night, right? When he steps into the world, dozens and dozens and dozens of people felt they were the Messiah. Dozens of people. And I can remember even sitting in some of the academic institutions there where I went to school that some scholars would say, so there you go. I mean, he's just one of many Messiahs. And for particular people who, like, aren't followers of Jesus and that don't, actively don't want to be a follower of Jesus, like, there's nothing special about Jesus. Dozens of people said they were the Messiah, and it is true. But there's a really good reason why dozens of people thought they were the Messiah. And it might even be at this point hundreds of people thought they were the Messiah, and this is really important. It's super important to our understanding of this. So let me tell you why dozens of people thought they were the Messiah. Daniel chapter 2, written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born. Daniel chapter 2 is very important. There was a prophecy. You ready for this? This is so awesome. This blows my mind. I don't know if it's going to blow your mind, but it blows my mind when I think about it. And in Daniel 2, it says this. There's this vision of this huge giant statue, and it represents five kingdoms, five kingdoms, five. And Daniel interprets this dream that the king has. He says, the first kingdom is your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Now, we know that Babylon was a great kingdom. We know that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. We know that Babylon ruled for about 70 years. Going to be a great kingdom. It's going to be Babylon. Then the second kingdom is going to come. It's going to overthrow the Babylonian kingdom. And it is going to be, does any history majors know who overthrew the Babylonians? It was the... Persians. I think, I think that's what I heard whispered out there. It was the Persians that, that overthrow the Babylonians. They ruled. And then who rose up after that? 
The Greeks, anybody watch 300? The Greeks rolled up, right? They eventually rise up. Alexander the Great, and he, he comes along. And then finally, the mighty Roman Empire. Well, this is what Daniel 2 says. There'll be four kingdoms. And then the fourth one, the mighty Roman Empire, like iron. It describes it as iron. That's what it was. The Romans, they ruled with power and might for so long. But during the fourth kingdom, Daniel 2 says, you ready for this? This is why there's so many messiahs. During the fourth kingdom, a Messiah is going to rise up, and it's going to start like a little pebble, a pebble that's drawn out of a great mountain. Now, all that means is that it's from God. This kingdom is from God, and it's going to start small, but it's going to overthrow the mighty Roman Empire. But more than that, unthinkable to do that, it is going to go and spread throughout the whole world, like the whole world is going to be influenced by this kingdom that starts as a little tiny petal. So now, when Jesus is born, it's the first century. They're in the middle of the fourth kingdom. That's why you have so many messiahs come along. Because everybody wants to overthrow the oppressors. The, Rome, the Romans are the oppressors, of course. I can do it. Believe in me, we're going to throw. So that's why so many people come along. However, there's only one kingdom. And you tell me if you know what kingdom that is that actually overthrew the Roman Empire for fact and is now a worldwide kingdom, just like the prophecy said. That's Jesus Christ. This is the way they're interpreting this. And even though in the first century they did not get to see Jesus overthrow the Roman Empire, we get to look and today and look backwards and see that's exactly what happened. If you're here today and you value diversity, then you have to value Jesus Christ. If you value diversity, you must value Jesus Christ because he is the one that has made that value popular. Because his movement is the most diverse movement in the history of our entire planet, period, end of story. It's a statistical fact. It's all over the world. I just read this past week that 70,000 people worldwide are becoming followers of Jesus Christ every day. People like Kanye West and Brad Pitt. You know what I'm saying? Closed on Sunday. Okay? So this is the way that they are interpreting all of that. It would not be a localized kingdom. It would be a worldwide kingdom. And so why when Jesus comes along and he says, the kingdom of hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he's saying. And that's what they would have heard. And it was only his kingdom that rose up and did all the things that the prophecy said. Now, something else is, is super important to understanding this. First century Jewish people, when they read Scripture, everything mattered. Everything mattered. Now, I sat through so many classes, and it's like this detail and this detail. I'm like, oh, gosh, geez, do we have to talk about all these details? Is it really, is, is there always something that connects to something? I mean, please give me a break. But that's not my world. That, you know, this is their world. This is the way they view it. So we have to view it through their eyes if we're going to correctly understand Jesus Christ. And there's so many things in the Christmas story, and we're going to highlight one or two every single week. And then all throughout this series, we're going to highlight as we trek through the Gospel of John about how they would view it. So here's how they would view it. So many people know this because you've seen a nativity scene or whatever. You've seen Jesus Christ, and he's born. He's born in Bethlehem, and the, the wise men show up. And there wasn't technically, we don't think, three wise men, but there were three gifts. So we call it the three wise men. So there's three visitors because there's three gifts. And they announced this miraculous birth, the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. And Mary and Joseph actively welcomed them in to their 
whatever that was, shelter. Okay, they welcome them in and they announce the birth. Now, how would they have heard that in the first century? Here's how they would have heard it in the first century. Can you think of a miraculous birth from the Old Testament? Can you think of a really, really, really important miraculous birth that happened in the Hebrew Bible? I can, Genesis 18. And the thing about them is they were so well-versed All you had to do is just mention a hint of a story or a scripture verse and immediately they knew it's like us saying, I have a dream. What am I talking about when I say I have a dream? What do you hear me when I say, ask not, right? Immediately we know this. This is how versed they were in Hebrew scripture. They knew it. And so when this story is told about a miraculous birth and three people showing up to announce the miraculous birth, they think of Genesis chapter 18. And what happened in Genesis 18? A very miraculous birth. One of the most miraculous births of the entire Bible outside of Jesus Christ. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham standing at the entrance to his tent and he sees how many people? One person? No. Two people? No. Three people. He sees three people, just like the three wise men. Uh Uh-oh, bingo, lights are going off. Three people, and they come along, and they're going to pass by. And Abraham's, no, 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 pass by. Please come into our tent and let us feed you a meal. And while there, they announce a miraculous birth. Sarah, at the age of 90, I don't know many 90-year-olds having babies. This is miraculous, okay? The age of 90, Sarah... You are going to have, and she laughs. You're going to have a baby. <laughs> she laughs. You're going to have a baby, but it's a miraculous birth, and it happens. And so when the three wise men show up in Bethlehem to announce a miraculous birth, this is what they hear. It's like, oh, my gosh. All the lights are going off. First century Jewish people believe this. An active faith is a faith where we believe that God lives where we let God in. That if we don't want to let God into our lives, we might not see the, the hand of God, the miraculous hand of God in our lives. Are we the kind of person that wants to let God into our lives? This is what it's calling. And they welcome God. Abraham and Sarah welcome into that. Mary and Joseph welcome God into that. Now, the word word is really important here, isn't it? In the beginning was the word. Why in the world did John decide to start that way? It's a Greek word, logos. Logos. The Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. Now, here's what the Greeks felt about the word Logos. They believed the Logos was the rational principle that governed the universe. They believed that we had a cosmos. They didn't believe we had a chaos. They believed we had a cosmos. They believed there was some rational principle that was ordering the entire universe. Now, today, we know something that they don't know because we have such good science. We know that our universe is based not on randomness. If it was random, we should see randomness everywhere. Instead, it's based on math that makes sense. So they were on to something. So it could mean that. It might mean that. But if you had to choose between the Greek logos and the Hebrew version of logos, you'd probably lean on the Hebrew version because it's written to people who speak Hebrew and who are Jewish. And here's what logos means in Hebrew. It means word and deed. It means word and deed. In other words, when God speaks it, it happens. When God says, let there be light, there's light. In other words, it's speaking about the character of God. There was a show on TV a number of years ago. It's called 24. It's a guy named Jack Bauer. Anybody used to watch Jack Bauer 24? I mean, you could not keep that man down. (laughs) Didn't matter what you did to that man. You could shoot him. You could put him in a plane and crash the plane. Bombs could be going off. Didn't matter what happened to this guy. He's the energizer bunny. He's like a cat with nine lives. You could not keep that man down. 
But one of the things he would say all the time to people in these very perilous situations, he'd look at them right in the eye and he'd say, you have my word, right? I'm coming back. Like they're in a situation where there's no way they're going to live. And he'd say, you have my word. I'm coming back. Now, do we trust Jack Bauer? When you say you have my word, it's, 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 it's about my character. I'm saying something about my character. If I say it, I'm going to do it. But if I don't have character, I just say stuff and nothing happens. So God is saying, if I say it, I'm going to do it. So there's this verse in Scripture. In the Hebrew Bible, it says, God says, my word won't return void. What's God saying? If I say I'm going to do something, that means I'm going to do it. It means you can trust my character. When I say I love you, it means I love you. When it says I forgive you, it means I forgive you. When I say let there be light, there's going to be light. When God says, I believe in you, you are worthy and worthwhile, then we can trust that. We'll talk a lot about in John, because John calls us to put our belief, our faith in God, but you need to know something before you even consider putting your faith in God. Something far more important than you putting your faith in him. And that is this. He has already put his faith in you. He already believes in you. I don't know if family members believed in you. I don't know if your friends believe in you or what you think the culture believes about you. But what we have in John is Jesus saying, that's why he comes. I believe in you. And I have good plans for you, awesome plans for you. And when God becomes the most important thing in your life, and this is the way God thinks about you, it begins to shape your identity. It begins to change you. It begins to change the way you see yourself and the way you see other people. This is why the Gospel of John is so important. My word won't return void. He speaks life and light and peace and forgiveness and hope. We are told that Jesus Christ is the final word. What does that mean? He's the final word. It means it's the final revelation, the final expression of exactly who God is. It is the identity of God. Once I know who he is, I will know who I am. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, it's a prayer. It's a great prayer. I, I refer to it all the time. He says this, I pray that you may understand more clearly then you will know the hope God has chosen you to receive. You will know that what God will give his holy people is rich. If you have read much in the Gospel of John, which we're going to be doing for about the next year, you know that there's a really popular verse, John chapter 3, verse number 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And in that verse, it talks about a rebirth. A rebirth. In Genesis, which we have to talk a lot about because this is like a recreation of Genesis, it says that when they turned their backs on God, that they would die. And scholars have always debated, what in the world does that mean? Because they didn't die. I mean, they eventually died, but they didn't die. Did something die on the spot? Or did just something die later? What are we talking about? What's dying here? One scholar has suggested that what died that day that they turned their back on God was a death of their understanding, their understanding of who they are and who God is. And what we're reclaiming here, what we're being born again to, is a correct understanding of who God is and who we are in God. And that understanding will change the entire planet even more than changing our whole lives. 
because that is what is really needed because it's in our identity and who we are. So I have one fill in the blank today, and that is this, simply this. God wants you to be rich in understanding. God wants you to be rich in understanding. Throughout this whole series here at Christmas, John is saying to us the gospel, the misunderstood gospel, the identity of Christ being misunderstood, that let's clarify this, exactly who is Jesus And once I know who Jesus is, I'll have a better understanding of who I am. Now, let's talk about this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a great movie. Isn't it a great movie? I think it's a God-inspired movie. I think it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. And when I brought up this idea to the staff, the great staff, I said, hey, we should do this, uh, It's, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it's a great, phenomenal movie, and, you know, it's just so, you know, deeply spiritual, just wonderful, wonderful movie. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody on our staff for sure has seen this movie. And as I realized, as we talked about it, I realized like nobody around the table, filled around this table, has ever seen this movie. It's like, what is wrong with these people? Don't they love Jesus or what? I mean, <laughs> what's, what's happening here? And listen, listen, I, um, I never like to embarrass anybody, so I won't say any names except for two. I'd like to share two names with you if I can. <laughs> I was so shocked. We're discussing it. Matt Komar is sitting right next to me, right? And he said, John, is, is, is It's a Wonderful Life? Is it, is it a musical? Is it a musical? Oh, what are you talking about? And if I could say one other name, Derek 80. <laughs> Derek, he's across the table. and He says, hey, man, is that the one with the Red Ryder BB gun? I, oh, that's terrible. The one where the little kid sticks the tongue on the flagpole and get stuck in the fire department has to come out like no that's not, i think even god was frowning at that moment it was terrible this is a wonderful wonderful movie what is this movie about okay real quick a high level okay and i know we've got the posters outside and everything for you to look at about it's a wonderful life but here's it's a wonderful life just the condensed really shrink down version it covers the life of george bailey. it follows the life of george bailey and george bailey grew up in a little town i think it was called bedford falls new york a little town in, uh, in new york and george George wanted to see the world, man. He was ambitious. He was smart. He was the most talented of the whole bunch. He wanted to see the world. But George always put other people first. And you see that right from his, when he was a little kid. They were all out playing on the ice at a little, I guess, a little lake or whatever they were in. And all of a sudden, his younger brother, Harry, falls through the ice. And George immediately yells out, Chain! gang or whatever or whatever so they all lie down on the ground all of his buddies lie on the ground they make this long chain leading off and so he goes to the end of the chain and he dives in and he gets harry out of course he gets terribly sick after that and he loses hearing in one of his ears but it's something that you'll you'll never forget because he put other people first he immediately jumped in and did that um when he's getting ready to leave i mean he's he's graduating high school he's going to go to college and he's going to see the world and then what happens The Bailey savings and loan that his dad ran was the only financial institution in town that stood against the evil Mr. Potter who just wanted to impoverish everybody. And now they're talking about shutting it down, but they decided to keep it open. But there's only one condition, one condition, and that is is that George Bailey would stay and not go to college and run it. And what did he do? He put everybody else first. So he stays in town. He doesn't go to see the world. And then he gets married. He gets married to Mary. And they get married. And they're driving away after the church service, getting ready to go to their honeymoon. There's a huge wad of cash. Like, we're going to see the world. Finally, he finally gets to leave Bedford Falls. And he notices a huge crowd of people out in front of the bank. 
It's like, what's going on? And they realize there's a run on the bank and he goes in and Mary brings the big wad of cash and they use all their honeymoon money to keep the Bailey saving loan alive. And what happens as a result of his life? Never leaves town, stays in town, helps people get decent housing that they can raise their families rather than crawling to wicked potter. And he always puts other people first. Now, we're all the way at the end of the movie. And his Uncle Billy, a little bit haphazard guy, misplaces thousands of dollars. Actually, he misplaced it in a paper. He put it in a paper and he handed it to Potter, not realizing it was in the paper. And Potter knows it the whole time. Wicked Potter never says a word. Now they're missing money. George is going crazy. He's looking all over the place. And the bank examiners are coming, of course, because Potter told them to come because they know they're short on funds and they're going to arrest George. He's going to jail. And by the way, the reporters have showed up too. So George says, I'm better off dead than alive. He wants to die. He wants to commit suicide. He goes to the bridge. He gets ready to jump in and Clarence shows up. Now, who's Clarence? Clarence is the angel without wings yet, but he'll get the wings. Clarence shows up. And how does Clarence save him? Clarence jumps into the water himself because he knew if he jumped in that George, because that's the way George is, George would jump in and save him. That's just what he did. And Clarence gave George this great gift. He shows him what his life would be like if he never lived. And then he realizes that he already has so much. Clarence says, George, Mark Twain quote, no man is a failure who has friends. And George realizes he's surrounded by family and friends that love him, love him. And then George says, God, I want to live again. And God lets him live again. And he runs through the streets of Bedford Falls and he's jumping up and down and wishing everybody Merry Christmas, even evil Mr. Potter. He goes and bangs on the window, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. He runs into his house and there's the reporter with the big camera. And there's the bank examiner, and there's the police officer, right, with, I'm going to arrest you. And he comes in, they're like, George, we need to talk. He's like, I know, I'm going to jail. Isn't it fantastic? His circumstances did not change, but his perspective did. And he realized in the change of his perspective, in the change of his perspective, that he was surrounded by family and friends, because that's the way he lived his life, who loved him and who stood with him. And so all the good stuff I'm getting ready to tell you, right, at the end, he doesn't know any of that yet. All he knows is his perspective has totally changed. Our perspective can totally change when we know that the most important person in this universe, Almighty God, loves you, believes in you, wants, wants the best for you, has good plans for you, if we'll see that. So, anyway, here comes Mary. Town starts showing up, all the family and friends. Everybody's dropping a dollar here, a dollar there. Eventually what happens is he gets himself totally out of debt, particularly when Sam Wainwright, if you've seen the movie, you've got to watch this movie, wires in from London $25,000. All of his money problems were completely over. And then comes Harry Bailey, his younger brother. Harry Bailey shows up. Harry Bailey was a World War II hero. Big parade going on for him in New York City. He leaves the parade in the middle of it because he hears his big brother George has a problem. He comes home in a blizzard snowstorm. He shows up. He tells, tells the whole house it's filled with people. He says, everybody, please be quiet. I want to have a toast. And then he says this to his big brother, George, who's never, ever left Bedford Falls, who never got to see the world. He says to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Now, he was rich long before Harry made that toast because he was surrounded by family and friends who loved him. And no man is a failure who has friends. Now, let me tell you something far better 
than family and friends loving you. And that is Almighty God loving you and speaking blessings over your life of light and life, of joy and belief and kindness and forgiveness and patience. And if we will accept the way God looks at us, we will probably live a life that brings on family and friends that love us too. There's a good chance that if we live a life understanding my identity in Christ, that I will then begin to live a life of self-sacrifice like a George Bailey, that then I'll be surrounded by people who love me too. So we want to do this, just to seal in this idea here at the end. We have something special for you. The ushers are going to help me out back here as well. We want you to know how rich you are. So I've got gold coins that I want to pass out to everybody. You might or might not be able to eat these gold coins. They might or might not have chocolate in them. But we want to toss some out to you, and we want to challenge you all week long to think about how rich you are in God. Who wants a gold coin? Anybody? Anybody? Gold coin? Okay, here we go. I'm going to ask as I throw them all over. Keep your, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Keep, don't, keep looking at me. Okay, I don't want to hit anybody in the head. I want to ask if they fall and you don't see it, that you reach down and get the ones. Just feel free to get out of your seat. Anybody else over here? Chocolate gold? A little, little chocolate? Okay, anybody else? All right. Uh-huh. Chocolate. They're good. Good. There's no calories. No calories in this chocolate. We just ask that you uh, pick up these gold coins when you're done. Don't leave any behind. Ah, okay. Got a couple right there. Just enjoy. Just enjoy. It's it's a long way back there. Tell the people in front of you, I'm getting ready to throw about seven gold coins. Okay, you're rich. We just want you to know, I'm at the end. I'm at the end. Here we go. We want you to know how rich you are. There you go. We are doing this because we want you to realize how rich you are in God, how rich you are in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ believes in you, which is far more important than you believing in Jesus Christ. We, we think, according to the Gospel of John, that if you understand how much Jesus believes in you and how much he loves you and how much he forgives you and how much peace and joy and all of these things and contentment and satisfaction that he speaks over you, that you will come to true belief because you'll come to a true understanding of who Jesus is. So we want to challenge you this week. It's easy for us to think about, you know, at the beginning it says he speaks light and life. It's easy for us to think about darkness and death, darkness and death. I want to challenge you this week to think about life and light. And one of the things we want to do to encourage that, remember I said earlier, it's an act of faith. First century was an act, you have to act upon it. That's how you really begin to experience something. You just can't sit back and think about it and say, okay, I really want to feel this. You can't, you have to act on that belief. So all week, we encourage you to act on that belief. And so we're going to give you an opportunity to do that today. When you walk out these doors, that door right there on that big, beautiful blue wall that the school has built that takes up 35% of that lobby out there for us because they're building an elevator which they've never started for months. So there's nothing behind the wall, nothing behind the wall. We could have be parties in there. Okay, we tear it down. We have put up... This huge poster says, I am rich because, and we want us to just encourage you, grab the markers on it, and why are you rich? Go ahead and act on your faith. God shows up in miraculous ways inside of people's lives who are willing to step out and to be active like Abraham and Sarah and Mary and Joseph. Why are you rich? Why are you rich? Because God loves you so much, because God believes in you so much, because God forgives you so much, because God is so patient with you. Why are you rich? Think about it all week. Write it down on the board on the, as you leave here. And be rich in God. Now, Blaise Pascal. Can I just end with this quote from Blaise Pascal? It's pretty good. There is enough light for those who only desire to see the light. And enough darkness for those who only desire the contrary. We encourage you to see the light this week. The light. 
and life of Jesus Christ and his love for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for this clear picture of who you are, Jesus. Let our own personal identity be so shaped by who you are so we will know who we are in you. In Christ's name, amen.